Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 300 of them now, and if this is your first one, you might want to go to batgap.com and check out the archives. They're categorized in various ways. Um, this program is made possible by the support of generous listeners and viewers, and if you feel inclined to donate, there's a PayPal button there. My guest today is Gary Renard. Gary is the author of the Disappearance of the Universe trilogy of books. Here's one of them, Disappearance of the Universe, and we'll be talking about the others. He speaks regularly all over the world, teaching the principles of A Course in Miracles, which is the fundamental focus of his books. In 1992, he began to be visited in person by two people in the flesh who identified themselves as Artin and Persa, two ascended masters. They are the main teachers in the books, and Gary is the student. These critically acclaimed books are now in 22 languages. So welcome, Gary. Hey, Rick. It's good to be here. Well, you mentioned it's abridged, but I listened to the audio version of your book in its entirety in the last week, and also the audio version of something else called The Secret of the Immortal, which was all very interesting. And, and as I listened, you know, almost everything you said, I thought, well, we could talk about that, we could talk about that. <laughs> so what I'm hoping we'll do in this interview is that you'll be able to bring out all the main points of what you teach, what you say, what you learned over the past 20, 25 years. And I realize that's a tall order, but you know, we can hit the main points and discuss them in some depth. Kind of paradoxically, I found myself agreeing with just about everything you said, but also thinking of devil's advocate perspectives, you know, and questions that, you know, is that really so? Or how I would probe you on this and that. So we'll kind of do that as we go along. Sounds good. Spoiler alert, there's sort of a surprise towards the end of the disappearance of the universe. Should we talk about that kind of stuff? Or, or if, you if you feel like it might be a, something you'd like to have people discover for themselves once they read the book, shall we not, shall we not cover certain things? Yeah, we can talk about it. Okay. It's, uh, it's not a secret since I speak so much. That's true, it's out there. All right, so give us the basic premise of I mean, what happened to you, how, how this whole thing started for you. Sure. Uh, my life seems to have run pretty much in 14-year cycles. I would say the first 14 years of my life, I was pretty normal. I was happy. Uh, I was pretty smart, and I was popular. I was a good baseball player. I was uh, fast. And I had a pretty good life, but then I'd say about when I was 14, I started to get depressed. And uh, I didn't know why, but I sunk into a depression that lasted for about 14 years. So. By the time I was 28, that was half my life. And it was a miserable existence. I had no idea about spirituality. I had no thought system. And one of the things I'm going to emphasize today is the importance of having a thought system because without one, your mind will run wild like an animal. It has to be trained. Then, when I was about 28, I had one friend left and his name was Dan. And he practically dragged me to do this thing called the EST training. Oh yeah, Werner Earhart. Yeah, and uh, what EST did was it gave me a thought system. It was actually a pretty good one. It wasn't as good as A Course in Miracles, which we're going to get to, but it was good. It gave me a way to consistently interpret everything that I saw in the world in a positive way. And uh, I would say that within a year or two, it really snapped me out of my depression. The reason I bring that up is because the way that you think determines how you feel. You know, a lot of people think that they're thinking a certain way because of the way that they feel, 
and they don't realize that the reason that they feel that way is because the thoughts that they've been having previously are creating that experience for them. Mm. So uh, the next 14 years, I was on a spiritual path. I started with S, but I got into other things. I explored other things like Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, I got into meditation. I got very good at meditating. I felt like I could achieve absolute stillness where there was no interfering thoughts of any kind uh, coming into my mind. That was a great training ground for what was to come. And by the time I was uh, 42 or so, I was finally ready to have a dialogue with my teachers. So that's when they appeared to me in the book, 42 years old. I'm living in uh, Poland Spring, Maine, out in the boonies. And uh, I'm on top of a hill where there are more deer than there are people. I was meditating one day. I came out of my meditation and there were these two people sitting on my living room couch. It was this beautiful, amazing looking woman, absolutely exquisite. And uh, some guy, you know, I didn't care too much about him. And she started to talk to me and uh, what she was saying sounded pretty interesting. There was nothing threatening about them. You know, people will ask, well, why don't you go running out of the room screaming when these two people showed up? And I think the answer is that they were very peaceful. They're very peaceful looking. They had a look on their face that inspired uh, calm and peace. Uh, there was nothing there to be nervous about. There was nothing there to be frightened of. Uh, it startled you a bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was kind of uh, more surreal. Pretty unusual. I was very relaxed because I'd been meditating. Yeah. Uh, but you're right, it was very unusual. And uh, for a few minutes I thought, well, maybe I've been meditating too much. <laughs> but uh, they made it a pretty short visit the first time. And they said they'd be back in a week. I don't know if I believed them or not, but sure enough, they did come back in a week. I didn't see them appear the first time, but I did see them disappear. And uh, it was instantaneous. It was like you were flicking a remote on a TV screen or something. There was no ceremony or glowing colors or any of that stuff. They just were gone instantly. And a week later, they appeared instantly. They started speaking and uh, I was pretty amazed. What they were saying was what kept my attention. They were saying exactly what I needed to hear at that time, because I was ready, not just for non-dualism, I, I was ready to take it a step further, which we'll get into, which I would call pure non-dualism because it involves God as the ultimate reality. Mm. So I was ready by the time I was 42 to really get into that. The next 14 years of my life, the first 10 of those 14 were spent studying A Course in Miracles and writing this book at the same time, The Disappearance of the Universe which uh, follows a timeline which you can see in the book. So it, it really chronicles my life. And uh, after about 11 years, the book was actually published. Uh, the whole time that I was doing it, you know, I didn't have any guarantee that it would ever be published. I didn't know if uh, anybody would ever read it, but it turned out that they did. And that was a pleasant surprise. So the next 14 years of my life were pretty much Course in Miracles. And then I was ready to make a move that I never thought that I would make. I never thought that I would leave New England. But, uh, you know, sure enough, when I was 56, I uh, headed to California. You never made it to Hawaii, it looks like. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm not Hawaii deprived because, okay. you know, since the book came out, I've spoken in Hawaii, I would say about 15 times. Okay. So uh, it's only a five hour trip now. It used to be 10 hours right. from this coast. Now it's only five hours. So I get to go there. I was just there uh, last month. Uh, we do a retreat every summer. You know, I love Hawaii. I don't rule out 
living there. But right now, the best thing for me is to be in Southern California. You know, who knows what the future brings. My life has never gone the way that I expected it to. Nothing ever happens the way that I expected it to happen. You know, people think that if you're successful, that that solves your problems. Well, all that it really does is it gives you a different set of problems. Yeah. So you're not going to get away from problems, but uh, I find my problems today to be more interesting than they used to be because I know what everything is for. And one of the things that A Course in Miracles teaches is that what everything is for is a certain kind of forgiveness. In fact, that is the miracle in A Course in Miracles. It's a certain kind of forgiveness where you are coming from a place of cause and not effect. Uh, certainly most people are at the effect of the world. And if you're at the effect of the world, it will affect you. In fact, if you invest your belief in this world, that gives it power over you. And one of the things that A Course in Miracles does is it takes that power back to the mind where it belongs. And the mind is cause, and what we're seeing is just an effect. So it kind of like reverses the cause and effect thing. And instead of being at the effect of the world, you can start to realize that what you're seeing is a projection. The American Indians, they used to say, behold the great mystery. Well, A Course in Miracles says, behold the great projection, because that's all that we're seeing. This universe of time and space is just one great big mother freaking projection that we've put ourselves under like a spell and we've invested our belief in it. And that's what gives it power over us. What the Course does is it takes that belief and puts it where it belongs, which is with God. Now, I know that it's not considered really cool nowadays to talk about God, and it's certainly not cool to talk about Jesus. But the idea behind A Course in Miracles is to undo the idea of separation, including the idea of being separate from God. In fact, that is the answer to the problems that we have. We think that the answer to the problems that we have is somewhere out there on the screen because we think it's real. And if we think it's real, we think it's true. And if it's true, then we think that the truth must be out there. You know, it's kind of like the X-Files. You know, the truth is out there. But what if the truth is not out there? You know, what if none of it's real? What if none of it is true? Well, then you can start looking for the truth where the truth is, which is at a place of cause, which is the mind. So uh, that's why A Course in Miracles says this is A Course in Cause and not effect. It says, seek not to change the world, seek rather to change your mind about the world. When you do that, now you're dealing with the cause instead of just dealing with the effect. An analogy I like to use, because I like to go to the movies. You know, if you read my books, you know that's my hobby. And uh, I like to go to the movies. The lights go down and my attention is diverted to the screen. I might forget that what I'm seeing is not real. I might suspend my disbelief and start to actually identify with the movie. I might get into the story. I might even get emotional about the movie. I might even talk to the screen. I might say, no, no, don't go there. <laughs> so I get into it and uh, I forget that it's not real. And that's exactly what we've done with the world. Uh, we've invested our belief in it. We forgot that it's not real. And so it affects us it, and it can hurt us because of that. But what the course does is it reminds you of something. It reminds you that there's this projector. Now, if I wanted to change the screen in a movie theater, it wouldn't do me too much good to go up and mess around with the screen because there's nothing there. It's a trick. It's an illusion, just like the world. And if I really wanted to have a permanent instead of a temporary effect on that screen, then I would have to remember something. There's this projector and it's hidden. I'm not supposed to think about it. 
But if I really want to change what's on that screen, I would have to find that projector. And I would have to change what's in the projector. If I change what's in the projector, the screen will take care of itself. I don't even have to worry about the screen. My focus has changed. Yeah, I can still participate in the illusion. And by the way, I think A Course in Miracles does a great job of uh, taking that old idea that the world is an illusion and further refining it into the idea that this is a dream that we will awaken from. And it's that awakening that is enlightenment. But I'm not talking about being more awake in the dream, which is what most people mistake for enlightenment. I'm talking about awakening from the dream. That's not just a minor distinction. That's what Buddha was talking about when he said, I am awake. He realized that he was the dreamer. He was not the dream. He realized that the entire universe of time and space was a dream that was coming from him. Uh, What makes Buddha, Buddha and Jesus, Jesus is that they understood something. They understood that the world was not being done to them. They realized that the world was being done by them, which puts you at a place of power. There's no power in being a victim, which is exactly what you are if the world is being done to you. And if this world were made uh, by God, you would be a victim of God. You'd be a victim of a force that was outside of you that did it to you. But what if God has nothing to do with this? What if God is still perfect? What if God, as A Course in Miracles in the Bible both say, is perfect love? Well, we have to understand the uh, implications of that because if God is really perfect love, then all that it would know how to do would be to love. If it knew how to do anything else, it wouldn't be perfect love. If it could have imperfect thoughts, it wouldn't be perfect. So God is still perfect. God is still perfect love, which is great because it gives us a perfect home to go home to. In fact, we're already there because the world is a dream. And when you wake up from a dream, the dream disappears, which is why the first book was called The Disappearance of the Universe, because what happens to a dream when you wake up? You know, it disappears. And what it is replaced by is reality. And reality is God, which is perfect oneness. Uh, In fact, the Course describes heaven as the awareness of perfect oneness the knowledge that there is nothing else, nothing else outside of this oneness, nothing else within. So right off the bat, you're starting to get a premise of what A Course in Miracles is saying. But uh, the thing is that the Course begins by saying nothing real can be threatened. And the Course is a very big teaching. It talks about very big ideas. And when it says nothing real can be threatened, it's talking about your reality. It's talking about what you really are and where you really are. And what you really are is exactly the same as your source, exactly the same as God, no difference, which means that it's perfect oneness, which means that you're not just part of it, you're all of it, exactly the same as God. Then the Course says nothing unreal exists. Well, that would be anything else, anything else that is not this perfect oneness. So that narrows it down a little bit. And what the Course is asking us to do is make a choice between those two things. It says, in every difficulty, each perplexity, and all distress, uh, Christ calls to you and gently says, my brother, choose again. What it's asking you to choose is nothing less than your reality. The way that you get to actually experience that, instead of just having it as a theory, is that you see it everywhere. You see it in others. The reason that that works is because of the way that the mind works. Uh, Course in Miracles understands how the mind works. And the way that it works 
and this is a very important principle of the mind that is stated in the Course. It says, as you see him, you will see yourself. And it must be pretty important because then it says, never forget this. You know, in that person, you'll either find yourself or lose yourself. So, the way it works is, if you could get down deep enough into the mind, you would discover that there's just one mind. And the reason that there's just one mind is because there's really just one of us. The Course calls your reality spirit and your unreality ego. So this is the domain of the ego, the domain of separation, which sees separation everywhere. But if you get down deep enough into the mind, it turns out that there's just one ego. There's just one ego appearing as many. That's what the Hindus call the world of multiplicity. You look out there, you see all this separation, billions of bodies, trillions of objects, uh, millions of things to choose between, and it looks like we have all this to choose between. But what the Course is teaching is that, no, it may look that way, but that's a trick. That's a sleight of hand. That's the uh, you know, trickery of the ego, which is separation. And the truth is, there are only two things to choose between, and only one of them is real. So you've got reality, which is heaven, God, perfect oneness, whatever you want to call it, but it's a state of perfect oneness. And then you have anything else, which doesn't appear to be perfect oneness, which is unreality. And that's what we're asked to choose between, and the way you choose it is by seeing it everywhere in others. Because if the mind knows everything, which it would have to, by definition, because that's where the projection of the universe of time and space is coming from in the first place, but it's unconscious. We don't see the projector, but uh, we see the projection. If the mind knows everything, which it does, then it knows that there's really just one of us. Now, that's good news and it's bad news. The good news is that there's power in that knowledge. The bad news is that because your mind knows that there's really just one of us, it will interpret anything that you think about another person to really be about you. So, you know, people wonder why they're depressed. You know, just look at the garbage they've been thinking their whole lives about other people in their judgment of other people. They never understood that whatever they were thinking, even if it was subtle, whatever they were thinking or saying about another person was really just going to them. Because your unconscious mind will determine whatever you think to be a message, not to somebody else. It will interpret it to be a message from you to you about you. And that's a pretty sobering thought. Because when you think about all the things that you've thought your whole life, you didn't know it was just going to you. And that it would determine how you feel about yourself. And not only that, but even ultimately what you believe you are. You're actually establishing your own identity as you will see it and believe that it is by the way that you think about other people. Now, a great master like Jesus understood that, and he understood that the way to experience his divinity was to see it everywhere. So he thought of everybody as being completely innocent, no matter what images the ego showed him. Uh, he knew better, he knew reality. So what he would do is he would kind of like overlook the body, which is just a symbol of separation and think outside of the box. You know, he would think of everybody as being this perfect spirit that is not just part of it, but all of it. So A Course in Miracles goes all the way with this. It doesn't just say, oh, I'm forgiving you because uh, I'm spiritual and I'm forgiving you. It, it forgives people because they haven't really done anything 
because they're not there. You're the one who made them up in the first place, and what you're seeing is a projection that is coming from you, and you understand that you can forgive yourself by forgiving others because you're just the one who's being forgiven anyway. There's not really anybody out there, and what you're seeing is a symbolic representation of that which exists in your own unconscious mind. So the way to forgive yourself is to forgive the images that you're being shown, which are really just symbols of what's there in your mind. And so to forgive anything that you see in this world is really to forgive yourself. And you will experience the benefits of that forgiveness. Uh, you're the one who's going to feel better. You know, you're the one who's going to feel happier. You know, people have no idea how good they could feel. I mean, they could feel so good, it should be illegal. <laughs> you know, and uh, you can determine how you feel about yourself by changing the way that you think about other people and seeing innocence everywhere. Now, that is heresy to the ego. Because the ego wants this all to be real because there's something that we don't know about the ego. The ego likes this idea of separation. The ego wants to keep it going. Why? Well, for one thing, it feels special. You know, it feels important to have uh, an individual identity and a personal existence in a universe of time and space to play in and to have all these accomplishments and goals and possessions and plans and things. And of course, we've made it all real. So the ego will say, well, it's very important what you do. And of course, the miracles would say, well, it doesn't really matter what you do as long as you're doing it with love, as long as you're coming from a place of love and forgiveness. And it's kind of like uh, what St. Thomas Aquinas uh, said. He said, love and do as you will. Uh, the only thing I would add to that is that do what you will should be done with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Because uh, one of the things that A Course in Miracles does is it doesn't just describe the problem. It doesn't just describe the ego or the world. It gives you a solution to that problem. It gives you a way out. It gives you a way home, which is something that most spiritual disciplines simply do not do because they don't know the full truth, which is God, and the only truth, which is the perfect oneness of God. So uh, when I mentioned pure non-dualism, uh, I know that you understand because you've read the book that my teachers described that there are kind of like four stages. There's uh, dualism in which we make everything real and it's very real to us and very important because we've invested our belief in it. And that's the state that most of the world is in. And then there's a state of uh, kind of like semi-dualism where you start to suspect that maybe this isn't all that there is, that there's a reality beyond the veil beyond what we're seeing and you start to look there and so the world is kind of like losing its grip on you you know you're starting to suspect that well maybe uh i appear to be here but maybe this isn't where i belong maybe this isn't where i'm from at one point of course miracle says the world you see is not home to you and somewhere in your mind you know that this is true and the truth is buried there in the mind I mentioned that the mind knows everything. Well, it also knows the truth, but it's been covered over. You know, it's kind of like been blocked out by the ego. The darkness of the ego is keeping that truth from coming to awareness, which is why A Course in Miracles talks about removing the blocks to the awareness of love's presence, which is your natural inheritance. Your natural inheritance is nothing less than the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but it's out of our awareness. It reminds me of something that Jesus said 2,000 years ago, which you can still see in uh, the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, the disciples went up to Jesus, and we said, when will the kingdom come? And he said, well, 
It will not come by watching for it. It will not be said, behold here or behold there. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth and people do not see it. Well, the reason that they don't see it is because it's not that it's not there, but it's out of their awareness. It's being blocked out. In fact, you can't actually see it with the body's eyes. You can see symbols of it with the body's eyes. But uh, the kingdom of heaven, which is our reality, is actually a higher life form. You know, it's a higher life form than being human. So in order to experience it, you have to be prepared for it. It's kind of like uh, a butterfly. A butterfly doesn't become a butterfly overnight. It starts out as a caterpillar and it goes through a cocoon process. And only when it's ready is it released to this higher life form, which is less restricted, more free, more beautiful. It really is more fun to be a butterfly than it is to be a caterpillar. And it really is more fun to be spirit than it is to be a body. And what the Course does is it prepares the mind to experience this reality in such a way that it would not be fearful because it really is quite different than what we thought was reality. It can be experienced even while you appear to be here, even while you appear to be walking around in a body. It's possible to have these moments, which uh, Course in Miracles describes as revelation. But the Course uses words differently than most people. When the Course talks about revelation, it's not talking about the imparting of information. It's talking about actual experience. When the Course uses the word knowledge, it uses it in much the way that the uh, Gnostics used the word gnosis. Uh, it's talking about actual experience of God, you know, an actual experience of your perfect oneness with your Creator, which is the great mystical experience that the masters of history have talked about. And when that happens to you, at first it may just last for a second or two, but that's all you need because what happens is the body seems to disappear and the universe of time and space seems to disappear. And what is left in its place is this brilliant abstraction, which doesn't have any parts to it because it's perfect oneness. And you experience actually being perfectly one with God and in that experience, it's perfection, so there are no problems. In perfect oneness, you can't be attacked. So you are completely fearless. There's nothing to worry about. And it's a very sexual experience also. Uh, at one point, the Course describes your relationship with God as intensely personal. And there's a very sexual aspect to this experience of perfect oneness with God. And it's so great that it can't be put into words. All you can do is scratch the surface. I mentioned uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. He wrote something like 40 volumes worth of material. And at the end of his life, he experienced God. And he said, everything that I've written is a straw. You know, it's nothing compared to this fantastic experience that we're all going to eventually. We're all going to the same place. Even the people who you think don't deserve to go to heaven will be there. But the reason that that's fair is because they're not going there as bodies. They simply have a mistaken idea of what they are. Eventually, that experience of being separate and being a body and being human will be replaced with the experience of being what you really are and where you really are. The reason I bring that up is because it is possible to get glimpses of that and what reality is going to be for you eventually. It's kind of like a preview of coming attractions. So, Gary, I have a, a bunch of questions based upon what you said so far. And I'm not sure where to start, but maybe one good one to start with was, you know, you spoke of the importance of a thought system being sort of established in, from the perspective of cause rather than the, at the mercy of effect. 
you know, this is sort of the principle of if you can affect the, you know, the, the course of a river at its source, it's going to be a lot easier to change it than, you know, down at the mouth of the river where it's entering the ocean because you have the whole river to work with and it's just a little stream at that point and it's easier to turn in a different direction. You, you speak a lot about thought, thought of this and the thought of that. And just one thing that comes to mind is people can read books. They can get a, a conceptual framework such as you've just elaborated. But I think just a few minutes ago you were distinguishing between a mere conceptual framework and actual experience. And I think sometimes people mistake understanding for the actual experience. They get, they get really conversant with a certain philosophical understanding, such as Vedanta or non-duality. And then they, they kind of think that that's what the great masters of Vedanta had. They had that understanding. But actually, if they could step into the, the shoes of those people and actually experience the world as they were experiencing it, they would find it to be radically different than a mere understanding. So what would you say to that? Uh, that is so true. And there's only one way to get from that idea of uh, conceptual knowledge to actual experience, and that is practice. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I ask people, do we really believe that we're going to attain uh, the same level of spiritual mastery as people like Buddha and Jesus without practicing? I mean, you can't get good at anything without practicing. You right. can't be a good piano player without practicing. What A Course in Miracles does is it gives you a specific technology of forgiveness that you practice every day, and that's what changes your experience. It's not just the theory. If you keep anything at the level of theory, including A Course in Miracles, it will do you absolutely no good whatsoever. It will get you nowhere. It will just be an entertainment. Yeah, it's like looking but, at pictures of food and expecting to be nourished or something. Exactly. What The Course does is it gives you a practice, which is what the workbook of The Course is for. So what, some, what's the nature of that practice? Well, there is work to it. That's why it's called a workbook. And the nature of that practice is a certain kind of forgiveness that understands that what you're seeing is not true, that this is a dream and that you are the dreamer. The dream is not being dreamed by somebody else. So now you're going to forgive people not because they've really done something. Mm -hmm. You're going to forgive people because they haven't really done anything because you're the one who made them up in the first place. So the way it works is something pushes your buttons, which happens to all of us occasionally. Like if I'm driving down the freeway, somebody cuts me off in traffic, right away I have a choice to make. I can respond with the ego, and I can go, ah, son of a bitch, and give the guy the finger. And uh, that's one possibility. Or I can stop myself. I can catch myself and switch to thinking with the Holy Spirit in the mind instead of thinking with the ego in the mind. That involves an active choice, which is why A Course in Miracles is proactive. It involves an actual conscious decision on your part to stop thinking with the ego and start thinking with the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, uh, that's what the Course calls the Holy Instant. That's when you start thinking with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has a totally different story about what's going on here than the ego. The ego is going to say, look, this is real. Uh, you got to take care of it. These people are a problem. Uh, they deserve to be judged because they're wrong. And the ego has this whole story going. In fact, uh, if you're not going to forgive people, you have to judge them. The Course says that uh, he who would not forgive must judge, for he must justify his failure to forgive. So if you're not going to forgive somebody, now you're going to make up this whole story as to why they're not worthy of your forgiveness. I mean, it would take less time to just forgive the bastards. <laughs> you know, so it's like you need to have that discipline to stop yourself. Yeah. And what the workbook of the Course does is it actually trains uh, the mind to get into the habit 
of thinking with the Holy Spirit instead of the ego. At one point, uh, the Course says miracles, which is this kind of forgiveness, are habits. So you get into the habit of doing it so much that you would miss it if you didn't do it. It almost gets eventually so that you can't not do it. You know, it reminds me of uh, something that the great violinist, uh, Ixat Perlman, said. He said, uh, amateurs practice until they get it right. Professionals practice until they can't get it wrong. <laughs> nice. It's like Jesus was so used to doing this and seeing innocence and divinity and spirit everywhere that he couldn't not do it. He would miss it if he didn't do it. So, and, and it's not just that Jesus had a different way of thinking. So I'll say this, but then you can tell me if you agree or disagree. It's that he had a different way of being. In other words, his whole orientation to the world was, was radically different. His moment-to-moment, 24-7 perception of the world and of himself was radically different. Not that he was going around, oh, I forgive this person, I forgive that person, but he, wouldn't you say he kind of spontaneously, viscerally, fundamentally was in a, a much higher state of consciousness than the normal or average person. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I would say that Jesus didn't just think with love. Uh, he was love. You know, Course in Miracles says, uh, teach only love, for that is what you are. You know, so eventually you experience yourself as being love. And uh, one of the things my teacher said was, you know, you don't have to go looking for love if that's where you're coming from. You know, you can just be love. And everything that you do in your life is just a natural extension of love. And that's the experience that forgiveness leads to naturally. It leads to that experience of love naturally yeah. because it undoes the part of the mind that is not love. Uh, this is about undoing the ego. Uh, at one point, the Course says, salvation is undoing. And every time that you forgive somebody coming from a place of cause, where you realize that they haven't really done anything, which is why they're innocent, because they're not bodies, because they're not this separation that they thought that they were. Every time you do that, the Holy Spirit is actually healing the part of the mind that you can't see. You may ask, well, you know, how can I heal my unconscious mind if I can't see it because it's unconscious? Well, you don't have to be able to see it. All you have to be able to forgive is what's right in front of your face, which is a symbol of what's in your mind. And by forgiving that, and doing your part of the job, which the Course teaches, is actually pretty small. The Course guarantees us that the Holy Spirit will take care of the big part of the job that we can't see and actually heal that which is hidden in your unconscious mind. Every time you practice forgiveness, there's some kind of a healing that's going on. Uh, the Course says that a miracle is never lost. It can have undreamed of effects in situations of which you are not even aware. You know, so every time you practice forgiveness, the Holy Spirit is taking that forgiveness and shining it, you know, all through the universe, the time and space, any parallel universes that exist. Uh, at the very beginning, in the first 50 miracles principles, the Course says that the miracle works in all the dimensions of time. So we know that this isn't the only dimension of time that's happening right now. There are multiple dimensions. You're in all of them, but you don't have to worry about what you can't see. Your responsibility is simply to forgive what's right in front of your face. And if you do that, the Holy Spirit will take care of the rest. So just so, to resolve this cart-horse question, taking your traffic example where somebody cuts you off, you're saying that by making the conscious choice to react to that situation differently than one might, not to fly off the handle, but to sort of forgive the guy, it has a ripple effect, which you know goes through all the dimensions and universes, and, and which is a significant step toward the unraveling of your habitual tendency to take the world as real 
and to you know lead and leads to your I'm, I'm trying to find my own words for this leads to your ultimate liberation or enlightenment and that if you do this often enough habitually enough it's a very potent means of going all the way and unraveling all the, the layers of conditioning and knee-jerk reaction tendencies. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's very true. And uh, one of the interesting things is that even though the Course isn't about fixing up the world, it does have fringe benefits <laughs> in the world, in, in your life. Because when you start thinking with the ego and you start thinking with the Holy Spirit, you can think more clearly and you are open to inspiration. The word inspired comes from the words in spirit. When you're thinking with the Holy Spirit, you're open to inspiration and you can have inspired ideas. You can have brilliant ideas. Uh, you can have genius level ideas that you never would have thought of if you were thinking with the ego and reacting and coming from a place of effect. You know, we're just presuming here that everybody understands what we mean by Holy Spirit. There might be a lot of definitions out there. So if we're going to use that term, let's define it. Sure. The Holy Spirit is kind of like God's representative in this world. It's the part of your mind that remembers the truth. Because uh, as we said, the mind knows everything. The truth is buried there in the mind. Think of that as being the Holy Spirit, the truth that is in your mind, that is speaking to you. It's your memory of home. It's your memory of God that is speaking to you. It's the higher part of your mind, the right part of your mind. So does with, everybody have their own Holy Spirit? Uh, or is there like one universal Holy Spirit and there's a certain part of our mind that kind of shares a little bit of that, so to speak? That's a good question because there is just one Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But the Holy Spirit will speak to you in a way that is best for you. The Holy Spirit will speak to you in a way that you can accept and understand. And the Holy Spirit knows what's best for you. So even though this is just one Holy Spirit, it will speak to us as individuals because that may be exactly what we need at the time. And how do we know when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and not some just sort of individual impulse that we want to indulge in? You know that old saying, the devil made me do it. Yeah, I think the answer to that question is simpler than we want to realize because that voice that you hear is talking about love and forgiveness and uh, great things. And if it inspires peace, that's the Holy Spirit. If what you're hearing is talking about judgment or condemnation or making somebody wrong, making it real, that's the ego. And the Holy Spirit is saying the opposite. The Holy Spirit is saying, well, it's not real. And what you're seeing is not true. That's why it's forgivable. If it was real, if it was true, then forgiveness would not be justified. But because it's not real and because it's not true, that's why forgiveness is justified because there is a reality that is just beyond the veil. So you learn to kind of like overlook the body and you still interact with people in a normal way, I hope, uh, because I've met some of the most famous spiritual teachers in the, the world and half of them don't know how to carry on a normal conversation. You know, it's like it's all spiritual and that's all they talk about. I was going to ask you about that. In fact, there's this, there's been this trend in the in the contemporary spirituality where, maybe ten years ago, there was a heavy emphasis on you are not a person and the world is an illusion and there's nothing to do and nowhere to go and all that stuff. At a certain point, people started getting fed up with that. You thought, you thought, well, am I supposed to say my children are an illusion? And you know, how about these money problems I'm having and this relationship problem I'm having and so on and so forth. And so the, these days, there's a, a trend toward what many people are calling embodiment. A lot of teachers are talking about embodiment. And I think what they mean by that is, can be summarized by saying that, yeah, you are a person, you're just not only a person. And you can't utterly dismiss the world as illusory if you're, if you're going to live in it. 
There was a famous story about Shankara, who was the founder of non-duality, and uh, he was confronted by a rogue elephant that was about to trample him, and he, he quickly scampered up a tree. And someone said to him, well, if, if the world's an illusion, why'd you bother climbing the tree? And, and he said, the illusory elephant, elephant chased the illusory me up the illusory tree. So there's this sort of juxtaposition or paradox where you, you need and, and want to take the world seriously to a certain extent and in a certain way, while at the same time realizing that you know, what people are seeing the world to be is not necessarily ultimately what it is. Correct? He brought up a couple of big topics. The first one is that the teaching that the world is an illusion is a very limited value. We've already said, as you see him, you will see yourself. Hmm. And if you're going through life thinking about people as being illusions and, and thinking, oh, the world's just an illusion. Yeah, I think I'll rob this and, bank. It's an illusion anyway. Right. Well, eventually you'll come to think of yourself as being an illusion. Hmm. And, and that's depression. Hmm. Because it's empty and it's meaningless. And what A Course in Miracles does is it replaces the illusion with something else. It goes all the way with it and says, there is a reality. And that reality is perfect spirit, which is God, and God is love. So it gives you something to replace it with. It doesn't leave you hanging. Now, because the Course is done at the level of the mind and not at the level of the world, you can practice it at the level of the mind. And by the way, you don't even have to tell anybody that you're doing this because you know this isn't a religion it's not uh, something you have to proselytize for it's a self-study course it's a personal belief system and because your thoughts determine your experience you can have these you know spiritual thoughts at the level of the mind and you can have your life too hmm. it's kind of like you can have your cake and eat it too you can have your life one of the reasons that i love the course in miracles is because it's a happy form of uh, spirituality you'll notice that it talks about a happy dream. It talks about being a happy learner. Uh, one of the 10 characteristics of a teacher of God is joy. You know, this isn't uh, your parents suffering sacrificial Jesus. This is the happy Jesus. Mm -hmm. This is the wisdom teacher who existed 2000 years ago, who was simply uh, pointing people in the right direction. He was saying, look, this is what works for me. Maybe you should check it out. Maybe you'll save a few thousand years in your spiritual development. A Course in Miracles does not claim to be the only way to get home to God. But I think it's fair to say that it does claim to be a fast way. It says the miracle can substitute for learning that may have taken thousands of years. So obviously he's talking about saving countless lifetimes by going to cause instead of effect. And the irony is that even though you understand even more that the world is not real, you can still have your life because uh, the Course isn't asking you to give up anything. It's just that you're looking at it differently. You're looking at it with the Holy Spirit instead of the ego, and you can still have your life. You can still have uh, possessions, money, plans. You can still have sex. You can still have your goals and dreams. It's just that now you're looking at it with the Holy Spirit with the understanding that you don't have to be stuck in it. You're kind of like uh, what the Course calls above the battleground, where, yes, you're still living your life. You're just looking at it differently. Yeah. And the irony there... Well, your movie analogy is probably pretty good because we never think that what is happening in a movie is really happening. You know, there's this battle going on right in front of me. We realize it's a movie, but that doesn't diminish our enjoyment of it. Absolutely. In fact, you know, I don't think of myself as being Gary. I think of myself as being an actor in a movie. You know, and I'm playing the part of Gary. But I'm not Gary. You know, just yeah, just playing its role. And so this, this, this perspective hasn't diminished your enthusiasm for life or your interest in life. It hasn't tended to make you more reclusive or some such thing. Oh, just the opposite. Uh, mm -hmm. I enjoy life more mm -hmm. than I used to. And the reason for that is as you do this, 
your mind is being healed of guilt that you didn't even know that you had. There is uh, you know, this unconscious guilt that can be traced all the way back to the original idea of being separate from God, which engendered a deep ontological guilt in the mind that people are not aware of. But as you practice this kind of forgiveness, that is being healed. And with less guilt in your mind, you actually end up enjoying life more. You know, so one of the great teachers of A Course in Miracles, probably the greatest teacher of A Course in Miracles, Ken Wapnick, who uh, made his transition about a year and a half ago, he loved classical music. And uh, at the end of his life, he loved it even more than ever. So you're not going to lose the enthusiasm or the love that you have for certain things in the world. You're going to enjoy them even more because you have less guilt in your mind. So that's why I say this is a win-win situation because you can have your life probably be a better life because you're open to inspired ideas. You can be more successful. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being successful. It's not against the rules here to have fun. You know, this is a happy form of spirituality. And why do you have less guilt? Uh, you have less guilt in your mind because that guilt is actually being literally removed uh, from your mind by the Holy Spirit. As you do your part of the job, which the Course teaches is your sole responsibility is to practice forgiveness, mm -hmm. uh, coming from a place of cause and not effect, and replacing in the mind what you're seeing with innocence everywhere, knowing that that is how you'll come to experience yourself. As you do that, the Holy Spirit, according to the Course, is actually healing the mind, actually removing this unconscious guilt from your mind. And after a while, that's not just a theory. You actually start to feel it. You actually start to gradually shift your experience from the experience of being a body to the experience of being spirit. So you're saying that if a person, which most people do, primarily think of themselves as a body, it's because they're carrying around a load of guilt? Yes, and they're kind of like siding with the ego, which is reinforcing the experience that you're a body. In fact, that's the Course's definition of temptation. I, I mentioned that the Course uses words a little differently than most people. Uh, the Course says that temptation has one lesson it would teach in all its forms, wherever it occurs it would persuade the Holy Son of God, he is a body, uh, born in what must die, unable to escape its frailty, and bound by what it orders him to feel. So if you're at the effect of the world and the body is telling you what to feel, you know, people think they have pain in their knee, they think that the pain is really in the knee. But the truth is, it's not in the knee, it's in the mind. My teachers taught me that pain is not a physical process. It's a mental process. That's good news because if it's in your mind, you can change your mind about it. Uh, you can start to get domination over the body. You can tell your body what to feel because you realize, okay, I'm feeling uh, some pain. Well, that's a function of guilt. But the truth is I'm not guilty. Well, pain can serve a useful function. If I put my hand on a stove, I want to feel pain because I want to know my hand is on the stove and take it away again. Yes, but it, as we've seen masters do, it's possible to walk on hot coals and it's possible uh, to experience fire without it burning because it's not really the fire that is burning you, it's the mind and the guilt in the mind that is burning you. Mm. So it's possible to change that. And uh, now you have a fighting chance because you can change your mind, you can have dominion over your mind. It's like the Course teaches, uh, if you know the body cannot heal the mind but the mind can heal the body, then the mind must be more powerful than the body. Do you distinguish between pain and suffering? I've heard people say, well, yeah, Jesus felt pain, but he wasn't suffering because he was established on you know, such a profound level of awareness that he was beyond the realm of suffering. Actually, he could not 
uh, feel pain either. Really? You mean you whack him with a hammer and he wouldn't feel any pain? He would, what, sure. what do you think he would experience? If, what did you think he did experience when they were driving spikes through his well, wrists? It's like this, Rick. Uh, at the end of his life, Jesus had no guilt whatsoever mm -hmm. in his mind. Uh, Course Miracles teaches that the guiltless mind cannot suffer because the pain is a function of guilt and the suffering is a function of the pain. You know, with no pain, there's no suffering. And his mind had been completely healed by the Holy Spirit. There was no guilt, which means that when he was crucified, and he's very clear about this in A Course in Miracles, if you read the section called The Message of the Crucifixion, uh, the real message was that what he really was could not be hurt, and it could not be killed, and it could not feel any pain or suffer, because his idea of being in a body had been totally removed, and his experience was his perfect oneness with God. Mm -hmm. So the crucifixion was not about suffering and sacrifice, it was about the lack of suffering and sacrifice, and the fact that what you really are can not only not be hurt, it's possible to experience that to the point where you cannot be hurt, and you cannot suffer, and you cannot feel any pain. So when they drove those nails into his wrist, he felt no pain whatsoever. The body to him was like a figure in a dream. A figure in a dream cannot really be hurt. It can appear to be hurt, but it's not really hurt. Now you're yeah. one of the more advanced Course in Miracles people of it in the world, probably. How would it go if someone drove a nail through your wrist? If somebody drove a nail through my wrist, it would hurt, but not as much as it would have. 20 years ago. Yeah. 20 years ago. I've been yeah. doing this 22 years. My experience of life is quite a bit different. Mm -hmm. uh, back then, I was still making it real, even though I'd been on a spiritual path uh, for 14 years at that time. It was still real to me. I still thought it was very important. I still suffered. And today, I don't feel like it's real. I don't feel like my body is real. I mentioned uh, as you go along, your experience will uh, change, maybe your body will start to feel lighter. Mm. Uh, maybe it'll start to feel more like the figure in a dream that it really is, instead of this thing that you have to carry around. Uh, maybe it will be more difficult to hurt it. Maybe it will be more flexible. Maybe you'll get in an accident and you know, you'll be injured a little bit and you'll say to yourself, well, you know, that should hurt. How come it doesn't hurt? And even you'll be surprised yeah. <laughs> at uh, the changes that are taking place. So it really is possible to shift your identity, shift your experience to the experience of being a spirit. Now, the good news is you can still have your life. You can still have uh, everything. You're not being asked to give up anything. You're just being asked to do it with the Holy Spirit and practice forgiveness as you go along. And one of the cool things is that the Course teaches if there's nothing there for you to forgive, let's say that you're actually in a good relationship with somebody and you're having a good time. Well, the Course teaches that, look, you don't have to go through the day saying, oh, this isn't real, it's just an illusion. What you should do when you're with somebody and you're having a good time is celebrate. And that's why I mentioned that this is a happy form of spirituality and it's okay to have a good time. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm married to uh, a beautiful woman and we have a great time. We love to go out to dinner and you know, I like to have a couple of glasses of wine and we like to have a good time. We like our traveling and our speaking. Uh, we just got back from China mm. where uh, I'm going again next week, but except this time it'll be Taiwan. I enjoy seeing the world and having sure. a good time and meeting all these great people. I'm not being asked to give up anything. And I have a better life than I used to have. Yeah. So uh, I think that as you go along, you realize that uh, the only thing that has changed is a recognition. The Course teaches enlightenment is a recognition, not a change at all. 
You mentioned this traffic uh, incident as an opportunity for practicing forgiveness, and it's a typical thing that happens to people, getting cut off in traffic. And obviously there's all similar examples where people are pushing your buttons at work. But um, how about the many times when we're in a fairly neutral situation? Let's say we're just walking down the street, walking the dog or something. There's nothing particularly challenging. It's just a neutral situation. Would you be practicing something even then intentionally to continue to make progress? If I'm enjoying uh, the walk, then there's nothing to forgive. You notice that the course doesn't uh, talk about forgiving the good stuff. It doesn't talk yeah. about forgiving the romantic walks on the beach or the beautiful sunsets. It focuses on forgiving the negative emotions when you do get your buttons pushed. Mm -hmm. You know, it says that anger is never justified, which is a pretty tall uh, standard. It is, and I heard that, and I wanted to ask you about that because a lot of times people say, well, you shouldn't suppress your anger, you know, you can end up becoming a repressed kind of person and you should express your emotions honestly and spontaneously and so on. And uh, I, I tend to agree with the thing of anger is never justified, but what would you say to those who say that, that um, you, know, you shouldn't repress, you should express anger or any other emotion if it arises so as not to be unnatural? Right. Well, the Course isn't about suppressing your anger, it's about uh, transforming it. It, it actually uh, releases it. Yes, that anger will come up. I'm not saying that if you do this that you won't ever get angry. In fact, I pretty much guarantee you that you will. Uh, the difference is now you know what it's for. Now you know what you should do with it. When that anger comes up, it's time to forgive. And if you forgive, you will feel better. That right off the bat. I mean, and if that were true, which it is, then that alone would be worth doing A Course in Miracles. But not only that, you get to gradually awaken in God as you go along. So, uh, you know, that's also a great thing. And, and this can also be very practical, even though it's not about changing the world. You know, I have that choice to uh, give the guy the finger on the highway or forgive him. Now, let's say I react with the ego and I give the guy the finger. Well, what if he has a gun? Yeah, you know, road rage. Dead. You get yourself shot. But if I don't give him the finger and if I choose the Holy Spirit, I'm alive. It's like there's uh, alternate realities, alternate dimensions of time. In one dimension of time, I practice forgiveness and I'm alive. And in another dimension of time, I respond with the ego and I'm dead. So that's why I say this can be pretty practical on yeah. a level of form. You know, the idea that the world's an illusion is just part of it. it. You have to replace that idea with something else. You have to go all the way with it eventually. <clears throat> and all the way with it is God. I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, you get this state of dualism. You believe the whole thing. You get uh, the state of semi-dualism where the world is starting to lose its hold on you. Then eventually you get to the state of non-dualism. And non-dualism will say that of the truth and everything else, only the truth is true and nothing else is true. And uh, then, of course, miracles goes a final step, I think, and replaces the whole thing with God, which is the truth, which is perfect oneness, which is love, and nothing else is true. So that's uh, the only reason that I make a distinction between pure non-dualism and uh, non-dualism, because pure non-dualism involves God as the ultimate truth where uh, non-dualism without God is kind of abstract. You know, and I'm not saying that's not valuable, it is. Uh, and it's one of the fundamental tenets of a lot of Buddhism. Not all Buddhists believe everything exactly the same, but that's definitely one of the fundamental things. Hindu non-dualists tend to bring God into the picture more. There's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita which, reminds, which you just reminded me of, which is, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. That's beautiful. And let's talk about God a little bit, because you just brought it up. 
you know, a lot of the most kind of renowned non-dual teachers, such as Ramana Maharshi and Shankara and so on, were actually great devotees of God, and they didn't have a problem with it. And in terms of the world, there being one unified reality, and yet they were very devotional men that spoke and thought in terms of God, were devoted to God in one form or another. And I heard you say in one of your books that God is sort of not responsible for the universe, if you put it that way. He's not involved in the universe. Maybe you could clarify what you actually said there, and we can, we can go into this area a little bit more. Sure. God doesn't think like humans because he's not human. I mentioned uh, spirit is a higher life form. Mm -hmm. uh, God does not have separate thoughts. God thinks in terms of perfect oneness. And God's representative, the Holy Spirit, also thinks in terms of oneness and sees oneness everywhere. If there's just perfect oneness, then it sounds like you just distinguish there between God and his representative, the Holy Spirit, and that doesn't sound like one. It sounds like there's this other guy that represents him. No, because there isn't another guy that represents him, but there is the memory of God in your mind, which really is the Holy Spirit. I see. So it's like so a reflection of God or a flavor of God or something. Yeah, it's kind of like you're remembering home. So it's like God really didn't have anything to do with the dream. And the dream only lasted for an instant, according to the Course. But what we do is we keep reliving it. It says, every instant of every day, you but relive the time when terror took the place of love. So there was this tiny, bad idea, as the Course describes it, which is the thought of separation, which uh, symbolizes itself in a dream. A dream of duality has both good and bad. It has both uh, abundance and scarcity. And, uh, you know, people then try to fix the problem out there on the screen, thinking that it's real. So they seek abundance in the world. And they think that the scarcity exists in the world. And they don't understand that the only place it exists is in the mind, which is why the Course says that a sense of separation from God is the only lack you really need correct. Mm -hmm. And if you could correct that one lack, which is the idea of separation from God, then you would never feel lack. You would always feel abundant. You would always feel like you were taken care of. But the truth is, God doesn't have anything to do with the world, and we should be happy about that. Because if God made this world and the things in it, then he'd be just as crazy as we are. You know, well, let me probe into that a little bit more. Love. Yeah, let me probe into that a little bit more. Because um, you know, some people speak of God as the sort of totality, the repository of everything. And that you know, if there's going to be a relative creation, it's going to have to have pairs of opposites. If there's going to be fast, there's slow, hot, cold, you know, good, bad, happiness, suffering. And, you know, some people say, okay, well, it's all God playing out this game within himself, playing different roles. Like in a, in a movie, you have the good guy and the bad guy. God is playing both roles. Right. Uh, the Course would say, no, God has nothing to do with duality, nothing to do with separation. Mm -hmm. It's only perfect love. And this world is here even though it's not here, in our experience, it seems to be here. And by the way, I'm not here to deny people's experiences. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to say that we don't experience that we're a body or that we don't experience that we have real problems in a real world and real bills to pay. I'm just saying that it's a false experience, that it's not true. Time and space are just separation ideas. You know, it looks like you're over there. It looks like I'm over here. That's just an illusion of separation. The truth is there's only one of us, and that oneness is really oneness with God not separation, and God doesn't even know about uh, duality because God is simply perfect love, and all that we need to do is awaken to that, awaken from the dream by forgiving it. So, uh, yeah, God, you know, doesn't have our experience. What we did, if you look at uh, the Bible, is we made up a God in our image. You know, we made up a God that has human characteristics. Uh, he does judge, and he is angry, 
and he kills people. And we, and we separated him from the universe like a clockmaker, you know, who is separate from his creation, winds it up and then it runs, but it's, you know, he has nothing to do with it. Well, people will say that, uh, you know, God made the universe so that he could experience in himself. If that is true, then God is insane. Because uh, that's like saying that the only way that you can enjoy sex would be to shoot yourself in the stomach so that you know what real pain is. <laughs> uh, and it's just nonsensical and it's unnecessary, which is why the Course says there's a better way. There is another way. And there's a way to forgive it in such a way that you wake up. The irony is, once again, you can still have all the other stuff you know, along the way. I mentioned earlier that idea of awakening in God. I think that the only reason, Rick, that people would stick with something like A Course in Miracles and keep doing it, the only reason that people would read my books and uh, take them seriously instead of laughing at me, even though they're lighthearted, I think the reason that they stay with something like this is because of their experience. Their experience starts to change. Yeah. They really do feel better. They really do start to experience spirit and start to feel lighter and start to feel like they're in a process of awakening in God, and that's what keeps them going. Uh, not because I say something or because somebody else says something or writes something, but because their experience tells them that this is true. That's a good point. I mean, there was a famous spiritual teacher and some reporter asked him, how many followers do you have? And he said, I don't have any followers. Everyone follows their own experience. So that's, that's just the point you're making. Let me ask you another question about God. A single cell has as much information in it as 10,000 volumes. And, you know, it's as complex as the city of Tokyo, and yet it's only a few microns across. And, you know, and it's this incredible mechanism. And we have 100 trillion of them or so in our bodies. Each cell has 100 trillion atoms in it. And each atom is this precisely, you know, arranged little thing that is a miracle unto itself. Now, some people look at that, scientists even, and they think, whoa, this speaks of a vast intelligence that we can't even begin to comprehend. And maybe that's what God is. Maybe that's what people are talking about when they talk about God. Uh, and you can, you can do it with anything. I mean, just anything in, that science has taught us. Uh, you look at it and it's this amazing thing that's going on. We're, we're talking about the universe here as illusory and a dream and unreal and so on. But couldn't the universe be seen as a sort of a a signal or a symptom of a vast underlying intelligence, that it's actually a kind of a, an indicator of, of how incredible God is, a, a signpost that points to th this amazing intelligence if we just stop taking it for granted and look a little bit closely at it. Well, it's like this. When the ego made the universe of time and space. Some kind of universal ego you're saying here, not just the yeah. individual ego. Yeah. Yeah, the one ego. Because there appeared to be this separation from God in the ego's experience. It engendered a tremendous guilt, which the ego wanted to escape from. More accurately, we wanted to escape from it, and we chose the ego's ideas instead of the Holy Spirit's because we were confused, we were frightened. All these ideas that exist in separation and duality that could not possibly exist in perfect oneness. And the guilt that it engendered, ideas like sin, guilt, fear, attack, punishment, separation, even death, came into the mind, flooding into the mind. We wanted to escape from it. We chose the ego's idea of escaping from it. And all of these ideas were pushed down into the unconscious. And even a psychologist today will tell you that projection always follows denial. So these ideas were pushed down into the unconscious mind. And then this vast projection occurred outward. That is what we today would call the Big Bang, the uh, making of the universe of time and space. 
But all that it really is, no matter how impressive it looks, is separation. And everything in it is based on separation. Everything has a beginning, an ending, uh, a border or a limit of some kind to it. And I'm not saying that it can't appear to be very impressive. Uh, the ego did do an impressive idea because the ego was imitating God. So what we have here is kind of like an imitation of life, huh. an imitation of God, a pseudo life full of uh, pseudo intelligence and things that seem to be very impressive. When the truth is at the end of the day, it's just separation and that's all it is. Hmm. But what we do is by making it real, we're impressed by it. Then the next thing that we do is we analyze it. You know, we analyze everything to death. The person who channeled A Course in Miracles, Dr. Helen Schuckman, uh, she was a psychologist. Uh, she was a research psychologist, but she also did therapy on the side. She did analysis. And after one of the sessions, Jesus asked her in the course, you can see it. He said, uh, can you find light by analyzing the darkness? And the answer is no. You can't find light by analyzing the darkness. You can only find light by undoing the darkness. Flick on the light. Through forgiveness. Principle of a second element. Just add, add light and darkness is no longer found, right? Right. So it's like, yes, it looks very impressive. And the reason that we analyze everything, and this is what a lot of our professions do, of course, whether you're a psychologist or a physicist or a scientist or a doctor or an engineer, anything. You know, I trade the financial markets. It's kind of like a hobby of mine. I analyze things. I just know that it's all BS. And it's like, uh, you know, you do that to make it real. The Holy Spirit is saying the opposite. The Holy Spirit is saying, don't make it real. Because uh, if you make it real, you can't forget it. Mm -hmm. So you have to make it unreal and forgive the unreal instead of forgiving the real. Part of that understanding is that the reality of God is just beyond the illusion, just beyond the veil. So while I'm having that normal conversation with somebody, and I always tell people, look, don't forget how to be normal. You know, when I go to somebody's house and there's a party, I don't start talking about spirituality. I can talk about a lot of different things. I don't even tell people about this unless they ask me, you know, if they're interested, if they're asking questions, then I know they want to hear about it. If they're not asking me about it, then there's no reason to talk about it. But I'm still forgiving. I'm still thinking, okay, this person thinks that they're a person, but I know better. And I'm thinking outside of the box. I'm thinking with the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking that just beyond the veil is a reality that this person shares with all of us. And that is this perfect oneness with God. And I know there's a fringe benefit to that too, because if I think of that person that way, that is how I will experience myself. So uh, this is something that you can do and really not change much of anything, except you're thinking differently. You equated God with love. God is perfect love. Does God have any other qualities you can enumerate? I would say what is reflected in the right part of our mind, things like love and forgiveness and beauty. Yes, there is beauty that appears to be in the world. The only problem with duality is that for every beauty, there is a corresponding ugliness. For every healthy body, there's a sick body. That world of duality, and eventually the bad part of the duality is gonna show up. You know, so uh, you can't get away from that in this world. The only thing you can do with it is forgive it and awaken to a real world, which is the uh, ultimate goal of A Course in Miracles. But I really think it gives you a better life as you go along. You just kind of like forgive as you go. But I asked you about qualities of God. God is love, everybody says that. And actually, I'm, this is a sneaky question because I'm leading up to coming back to what I, we were just discussing, which is that we see some amazing qualities displayed in creation. 
you just attributed the, the whole creation to the ego. But if we look closely at creation, it's, it's a pretty darn cool thing in the sense of the unbelievable complexity and the vast intelligence that's, that seems to give rise to that complexity. And so I guess the question would be, is intelligence an attribute of God in addition to love? And is the intelligence we see in creation sort of symptomatic of, of God's intelligence percolating up into the material world? And I think you just said, no, it's not. It, God has nothing to do with it. It's just the ego. And, and that's, a, that's a bit of a head-scratcher for me because, you know, I, I tend to think if God is omnipresent, then he is not only beyond creation but pervades all creation. And if he doesn't pervade all creation, okay, I'm... I'm answering my own question here. You're going to say that, well, creation doesn't even exist, so God doesn't pervade it. Um. Yeah, let me put it this way. Intelligence without love is nothing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm cool with that. So God can be both. Now, what's the first thing we did with atomic energy? You know, we built a bomb. Built a bomb, right. You know, so intelligence without love is nothing. And what the Course is asking you is to choose. Mm -hmm. To choose love instead of the ego. Mm -hmm. And that's the only choice that we're asked. Uh, to make. Now, as far as uh, creation in the dream, I think what we have to understand is that there is no truth in the dream. Uh, the truth doesn't exist in the dream. It's kind of like this. Let's say you have a three-year-old daughter and she's in bed at night and she's dreaming. You peek in on her, you can tell that she's having a bad dream. She's tossing, she's turning, you can tell that she's not having a good experience. But you can't see her dream. Why? Because it's not real. It doesn't exist but you can see that she's having a dream. So what do you do intuitively? Maybe you'll sit down next to her and you're not going to shake the hell out of her because you want her to wake up peacefully. So maybe you'll whisper to her. Maybe you'll say, hey, it's only a dream. What you're seeing is not true. In fact, you don't have to worry about it. I'm here with you. you know, and I'm going to wake you up gradually so that you'll be happy when you wake up. And an interesting phenomenon occurs. She can hear your voice in the dream. She can hear the truth in the dream and start to listen to the right voice that mm. speaks for a reality that is greater than the dream instead of that voice in the dream that is speaking for the reality of the dream. And she starts to listen to the right voice and she starts to relax and you're speaking to her from outside of the dream because the truth is not in the dream ever. And if people remember that, they're going to save themselves a hell of a lot of time. There is no truth in the dream, but the truth can be heard in the dream and what happens is eventually your daughter starts to relax and then she wakes up. And when she wakes up, she's surprised to find out that she never left the bed. It was there the whole time. It's not that the bed wasn't there. It was just out of her awareness. She couldn't yeah. see it. Just like Jesus said 2000 years ago, you know, the kingdom of heaven is here, but people cannot see it. And it's out of their awareness. The bed was out of her awareness. And you can think of what we woke up to this morning when we woke up from the dreams that we were having in bed last night was just a different form of dreaming. Hmm. Uh, the Course teaches that all of your time is spent in dreaming. It well, says, it's an interesting metaphor you just used oh. because what you're sort of saying is that the world, which is illusory, is whispering to us, wake up, wake up. And, and so, that different sorry. things, different experiences we have, and, and even if, you, let's say you're a scientist and you're studying the, the mechanism of a cell, you're getting sort of information from that study that is hinting to you that there's a deeper reality that you know, you're ordinarily oblivious to. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna get you on this one. <laughs> the universe is not whispering to us to wake up. It's the Holy Spirit that is whispering to us to wake up. Our, our memory of right, God. Which is God's representative, so to speak. Right. And right. the Holy Spirit can be heard in the dream. The Holy Spirit is in the mind 
And it's kind of like the part of the mind that chooses. Well, you could think of you, when you say I, you could think of that as the part of the mind that chooses. And what you're choosing between is the Holy Spirit and the ego. But the Holy Spirit is technically is not in the world, not in the dream. It's speaking to us through uh, the mind. So it's really Holy Spirit kind of like educating the ego to choose against itself in a way. You're choosing the Holy Spirit and the ego is weakening. And maybe even the ego will start to get the idea that it's more fun to be spirit than to be a body, but that takes time. But the Course does say that the ego can learn. So it's kind of like you're choosing against the ego. The ego doesn't like that at first, but eventually the time comes when even the ego starts to get used to the idea that, hey, this, this is a good thing. And then you're really getting there. You're really getting toward the end. Speaking Tell of the end, I heard you say quite a bit of time, quite a few times in your book that, as would the Buddhists say, it's it's a good idea the idea to get off the wheel of reincarnation. That you want to sort of end the cycle of rebirth and come home to your ultimate state, which I think you equated with heaven. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit about why why it's advantageous to stop being reborn and what heaven is that we're going to end up in if we stop being reborn. Right. Well, uh, this is a world that includes pain, and it's always going to come back to that sooner or later. At one point, the Course describes this as the dream of death. Uh, there is no death in heaven. And this, the Course says there's no death here either. It's just the belief in death. And what gives death power over us is our belief in it. So in the Course, uh, the last two obstacles to peace are the fear of death and the fear of God. And we don't realize that if we didn't have this fear of God, we wouldn't fear death either. That these are inventions of the mind that we have invested our belief in. I think that what you have to remember is that it always comes back to that choice, no matter how difficult things get. Uh, the Course says in every difficulty, each perplexity, in all distress, uh, Christ calls to you and says, my brother, choose again. Choose with the reality of the Holy Spirit instead of the unreality of the world and undo its power that it has over you. If you do that, your experience starts to change, and that brings up the real answer to all of our most difficult questions in life. There's this great part in the workbook of the Course. Uh, Jesus is speaking, and, and, uh, and by the way, people think of Jesus as being a leader. He didn't think of himself that way. Jesus was the ultimate follower. He says in the Course, eventually, I just listened to one voice. Eventually, he just listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit instead of the ego. Never listened to the ego. So he was a follower too. He wasn't really the leader that people made him out to be. The real answer, you know, he says in the workbook, the ego will ask many questions that this course does not answer. For example, how did the impossible occur? Because people will always ask, well, how did I get here? And I'll say, well, you know, according to the Course of Miracles, I'm not here. You didn't, right. So, yeah, I know, but how'd I get here? So, <laughs> right. Yeah, you know that example of the snake and the string in Vedanta? You know, people see a snake on the road, and they, or they, see, they think they see a snake on the road, it's really a string or a rope. And they're running around, you know, how to deal with a snake, and we should get it when ambulances are coming because people are having heart attacks and so on, but it's, it's really only a string. So someone might ask, well, how did the snake get there? It never did. It was always a rope. <laughs> you just mistook it. The, maybe the light wasn't enough or something. Yeah. So, this Course will ask many questions, the ego does not answer, and then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, there is no answer, only an experience. Seek only this, and do not let theology delay you. What he's saying there is that the real answer to our most difficult questions in life 
is going to come to us uh, not in the form of words, but in the form of an experience, an experience of what you really are mm. and where you really are. And when you have that experience of revelation, you understand that that is the answer. In that answer, there are no questions. Uh, the questions only exist in the dream. Then you appear to come back here to the dream and you have questions again. And you realize, hey, I'm dreaming the questions. You know, the Course says that awareness of dreaming is one of the functions of the miracle worker. Uh, you become more aware of the fact that you are dreaming. And it becomes kind of like a lucid dream. And, and you realize, hey, you know, I'm just dreaming those questions and I'm flying to China. Well, I'm, really, I'm just having a dream that I'm flying to China. The Course says uh, you travel but in dreams while safe at home. It says you are at home in God dreaming of exile, but perfectly capable of awakening to reality. And the way that you facilitate that awakening is once again through this kind of forgiveness. So uh, you'll notice in my books that even though we talk about a wide variety of subjects, all kinds of different things, uh, eventually my teachers always bring the conversation back around to forgiveness because that's the fundamental teaching and tool of the Holy Spirit. And uh, sooner or later, it's going to come back to that. Understanding that, what I try to do is I try to do it whenever the opportunity comes up. We have a, a phrase that we coined. I have a, an online discussion group. It's uh, the biggest Course in Miracles study group in the world. And we coined a phrase the very first year. This was about oh, 12 years ago. Uh, we call it JAFO, J-A-F-O. It stands for just another forgiveness opportunity. <laughs> now we know what things are for. Things aren't going good and we don't get what we want, which is an ego special. And you're disappointed and you're feeling anxious about something. Uh, however it shows up, that's the forgiveness opportunity. And if you take advantage of it, you'll get the benefits of doing A Course in Miracles. And if you don't do it, well, then it can't help you. I think one of the questions is how bad do you want the results of the Course? How bad do you want the peace of God? At one point, the Course says about those words, I want the peace of God. Uh, to say these words is nothing, but to mean these words is everything. And the way that you show that you mean it is through your practice, by doing it every day. It's like, let's say you wanted to be a great piano player. Well, the first time you, that you sit down to play the piano, you suck. You know, and the only way that you're ever going to be that great piano player someday is if you sit there every day and practice a lot. But if you do, and if you want it badly enough, then eventually you can be a great piano player. Sure. And when it comes to forgiveness, eventually you will be like Jesus. It's not a question of if. It's no a question way. of when. You mentioned that um, you know, the Course in Miracles is you know, not the only path, but it's a, an effective path and a fast path. And as I recall, I haven't listened to it again since I did it, but when I, I think when I interviewed David Hoffmeister, I asked him, how many people in the Course of Miracles would you say are enlightened? And we kind of went into what enlightenment actually means, but, and you can elaborate on what you say it means um, in, in your answer here. And he said, not too many. If that's what he said, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, do you, do you agree that you know, percentage-wise, among all those who practice Course in Miracles, there isn't a fairly significant percentage of enlightened people? And by enlightenment, I guess we mean you're off the wheel of birth and death, or, or whatever. Please elaborate as you answer this question. Sure. I would say that uh, it's a low percentage, but I definitely believe that that is increasing. My teachers say that there are certainly more enlightened people today than there have ever been. Uh, of course, miracles is just one reason for that. Yeah, it's like anything else, like maybe one in 20 course students 
will stick with it long enough and really do it, really practice forgiveness. And sure. Point where eventually they do it all the time. Eventually they will be enlightened. And even if they're not, they would have made so much progress. And that progress stays with you, by the way. You don't have to start all over again. Yeah. That all stays in the unconscious mind. You don't ever lose it. It says that in the Bhagavad Gita too, by the way. It says that wherever you leave off at the end of this life, you pick it up again from there in the next life. Yeah, so maybe in uh, your next life, you're 25 years old and you go to this meeting and these people are studying this strange thing called A Course in Miracles and they don't understand it and you pick it up and you start reading it, you get it. and it makes sense to you. Mozart could play the piano when he was six and start writing symphonies. Yeah. It's nine. It wasn't the first time. Right. He had been doing that. So right. it's the same with the Course, but I do think it is possible to be enlightened in one lifetime with mm -hmm. the Course. I think one of the scribes of the Course, uh, Bill Thetford, uh, his good friend, uh, Judy Scotch, the original publisher of A Course in Miracles, who I'm now friends with, I'm privileged uh, to say, she said she thought that Bill was the first one to graduate from mm. the course. Would you say that you've graduated? Or would you say that you're enlightened? Kind of putting you on the uh, spot here, but... <laughs> no, I've come a long way. According to my teachers, I do live one more lifetime. The lifetime that I'm going to live is the form of the woman who appears to me as a teacher, Persa. Persa. That's her in my final lifetime, which is my next lifetime, which takes place 100 years from now mm -hmm. in Chicago. And one of the reasons that... The and three she was St. Thomas, and therefore so were you 2,000 years ago, who wrote the Gospel of Thomas, just to throw people a little tidbit there that might intrigue them. Uh, the reason it's a trilogy is because it shows how these lifetimes are connected. You know, of course, Miracle says that Charles of lessons presented once again, so that where you made a faulty choice before, now you can make a better one. Mm and thus escape all the pain that your previous decision brought to you. She had lessons as Thomas 2,000 years ago. The guy who appears to me was uh, Thaddeus, St. Thaddeus. Mm -hmm. In this lifetime, those two people are myself and my wife, Cindy, which is uh, explained oh, in the books. Cindy was Thaddeus. Right. I see. And, and therefore was Persa. I mean, uh, Arden. Arden, right. Yeah. In, our, in our final lifetime, 100 years from now, I'll uh -huh. be person, she'll be Arden, uh -huh. and we'll both achieve our enlightenment in that lifetime. You know, I don't mind coming back one more time. I figure yeah. there's one lifetime that's worth coming back for. Sure. One this one's fun, right? Why not another one? Yeah, well, you got to be careful of that because uh, the ego <laughs> wants this world to be attractive. You notice when people remember their past lifetimes, they always remember the good ones. Yeah, it was Cleopatra or whatever. <laughs> people remember the lifetime that they died in prison or the lifetime that they died face down in the gutter. And they always remember the good stuff because the ego wants us to be attractive and, and wants us to keep coming back for yeah. more because the ego likes it. And it's all the ego knows and it's afraid of losing it. But eventually you learn that there is a better way. And you would never have known all this stuff, obviously, if Arden and Persa hadn't shown up and told it to you. I mean, you would never have known you were them or that they even existed or that you were Thomas or anything else. And so you're pretty much taking their word for it. Other than what they told you, have you had any sort of cognitions or insights that corroborates what they said? Yes. My mystical experiences have usually been very visual. I have this place, I call it the in-between zone when I'm kind of like falling to sleep at night, but not really asleep yet, just mm -hmm. kind of like in between conscious and unconscious. In that state, I'll very often have visions. Mm -hmm. And this is really like watching a movie, even with sound sometimes. And I'll see scenes from uh, past lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And intuitively, it's like I'll know which person is me, which person is someone who I know in this lifetime, or I'll know that I haven't met them yet in this lifetime. 
but the way that my teachers explain it is they say that we're kind of like in each other's orbit. Yeah. You're in somebody's orbit. You, you seem to go away from them for a while, but you always come back, you know, close to them. Yeah. Because we're in each other's orbit and uh, we will meet again. The Course says the script is written. Those who are to meet shall meet. I like the way Emerson put it. He says, he said, if we are related, we shall meet. Uh, when you meet someone, it's not an accident. The only question is, what is it for? Now, if there's nothing to forgive, it's to celebrate. <laughs> if there's something to forgive, that's what it's for. Either way, you know, it's interesting because it's all a setup. Uh, the Buddha we said we've had so many lifetimes that everybody we ever meet has actually been a direct family member to us at one point or another. Yeah, you could say it in some way we are even physically related, mm -hmm. in the dream anyway. Yeah, it's like uh, the whole thing fits together and that's why the books fit together and the story in the third book eventually is, is resolved. And they explain their final lifetime, how they achieved enlightenment, the things that happened that they had to forgive. And it's uh, very interesting. I am doing a fourth book with Art in Person, but it's not really part of the trilogy. They talk about other beings who have become enlightened. So are they and, still visiting you, Art in Person? Yes. Oh, yeah, cool. Good. The only difference is instead of talking about, you know, Thomas and Thaddeus and Cindy and me and Art in Persa, they talk about other masters and how they achieved enlightenment. It's a good way, I think, to paint examples for people to follow and kind of like say, well, this is how they did it and this is how you can do it too. You know, on the internet, of course, people can be pretty cruel and crass and... Really? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and so I'm sure that people are going to hear that what you've been saying, of, you know, you were St. Thomas and Arden and Persa came, showed up in your living room and all that and think you're either crazy or delusional or have a good imagination or a big liar. So do you ever like bother responding to those kinds of things or do you just sort of let those who have ears to hear, hear? It's like this. Everybody who is watching this in some lifetime has been somebody who is so famous and so awesome and so amazing that they would gasp if they knew who they were. That's duality, because you're going to have those kinds of lifetimes. Unfortunately, because it is duality, you're also going to have other lifetimes. You know, when you're born starving to death in Africa. You know, so uh, you can't get away from that in a world of duality. The only question is, what is it for? Now, I don't care if uh, people believe me, you know, personally. But even if they don't believe me, they can still get a lot of help from the ideas that are in the book. Yeah. Uh, the point to the book is I believe it. Uh, I believe it. If somebody else believes it, that doesn't matter. That's good. Now, on the topic of belief, uh, I don't know if you ever watched the debate between Ken Ham, who runs the Creation Museum in Kentucky, where they say the world is 6,000 years old and people used to ride around on dinosaurs, and they have sort of pseudoscientists who you know, they, they claim are supporting their views. And there was a debate between him and Bill Nye, the science guy, that guy that always wears the bow ties. And it was very interesting. It was like a two-hour debate. And what Ken Ham from the Creation Museum kept coming back to was, well, there's a book. You know, I mean, Bill Nye would bring out all this scientific evidence about something and refuting something Ken Ham was saying. And Ken would say, yeah, but there's a book claiming that the Bible is the final authority on all this stuff. And we can take that as absolute ultimate truth and, and uh, you know, spin everything out from there. So in a way, some people might say, well, you're doing that with the Course in Miracles because so many times you say, well, this is so because the Course says such and such. How would you respond to that? And the, and the whole kind of topic of believing in what a book says um, as being a super important thing to do or or is it something we should take as evidence or theory that can 
be investigated experientially rather than taking it on faith. Right. The reason that I believe the Course in Miracles, the reason that I believe the Holy Spirit is not because of some uh, blind faith or uh, a religious type thing. It's because of my experience. My experience has changed. Uh, the Holy Spirit has earned my trust. You know, the Holy Spirit has earned my trust by leading me to good things, by showing up as my teachers. Uh, art and person are the Holy Spirit taking on a form. The Course says about the Holy Spirit, His is the voice for God and is therefore taken form. This form is not His reality. So the Holy Spirit's reality is always spirit, but the Holy Spirit has to take on a form in order to communicate with us, because if it didn't, we'd never be able to hear it. So it has to literally take on some kind of a form in order to communicate with us. That form could be something different for different people, which is why I said that the Holy Spirit will show up for people in whatever way is best for them. That form could be uh, an angel. It could be another saint. Uh, it could be the Virgin Mary. It could, it could be any one of a hundred things. Most of the time, the Holy Spirit takes the form of an idea that simply comes into your mind, a form of guidance, an inspired idea, and you, you just know it because you didn't think of it. It just came to you. You know how people do great things and you'll ask them, wow, that, that was a great idea. How'd you think of that? And they'll say, well, it just came to me. You know, the ideas just come to you. And uh, that to me is an example of the Holy Spirit earning your trust. It's, it's not like, oh, it's true because the Course said so. Right. That's not real for me. What's real for me is that the Holy Spirit has earned my trust by changing my experience of life. If we could give it a ratio or a proportion, what percentage of your inspiration has come from the books themselves, or the, the book itself, The Course in Miracles, and what, has, what percentage has come from your actual cognition or, or direct experience, irrespective of the, the book? Yeah, I don't make a uh, distinction between them because it's all the Holy Spirit to me. Mm. So it's kind of like Arden and Person keeps speaking with me in between visits. They edit my writing. But <laughs> it's all the Holy Spirit. I'm one of the few people who actually has it in my contract that the publisher cannot change anything mm. in my books because uh, they wouldn't allow that. I literally have to keep it the way that they do it. I'm not a writer. I never have been. I don't right. think myself as you being. You are now. I don't like to write. You know, I'm from the uh, Richard Bach school of writing. Uh, he said that if he got up in the morning and made a list of 10 things that he would like to do that day, writing wouldn't even be on the list. <laughs> you know, so uh, I, I definitely am not into writing. I do it because uh, I feel better later. I feel better when I write. Mm. Uh, there's an old saying among writers, I hate to write, but I love to have written. Mm, nice. So it's fun when it's over. Yeah. So that, that part is fun. It's all the Holy Spirit to me. Okay, good. Unfortunately, the, our live streaming didn't work today. I'm going to have to figure out how to get that working more reliably. But before we started, someone sent in some questions. And before we run out of time, I, I want to show her the courtesy of asking you these questions, at least some of sure. them. It's someone named Goji from Nitro, Slovakia. All these questions are related to uh, A Course in Miracles and your books. I'll just take them in order and we'll see where we go. Uh, there's six of them all together, so you might want to pace yourself in terms of how much we talk about each one. Question number one, how do you reconcile that people, on one hand, are figures in the dream, and on the other hand, brothers in Christ? These are two opposing views because as you see him, you see yourself. So for example, if a vicious person or a dog is attacking me, am I to view the person or the dog as a figure in the dream or as a brother? Uh, you're really talking uh, apples and oranges because one of those things is true, the spirit that is real. 
and one of those things is faults, which is uh, the body that you're seeing. Now, I said, don't forget how to be normal. If somebody is attacking you, for example, if you're a woman and you're out on the street, somebody is attacking you, you don't stand there quoting that Course in Miracles lesson. You know, if I defend myself, I'm attacked. What you do is you do the normal thing. It's not going to inspire peace for yeah. you or your family. Get out the mace or whatever. You know, yeah. right, for you to be murdered. So what you do is, it, yes, it is okay to defend yourself. You have to remember that the lessons of A Course in Miracles are meant to be applied at the level of the mind, not in the world. They do not always work in the world. In the world, you do whatever you're guided to do by the Holy Spirit. And uh, it may take the form of temporary defense in the dream. For example, if somebody sues you, the Holy Spirit's uh, advice to you may be to get a good lawyer. You know, so it is uh, okay to take practical action uh, in the world and be normal. And these lessons are applied at the level of the mind. So if that dog is attacking you or if that person is attacking you, I would say do the normal thing. It's okay to defend yourself, but what you do when it's appropriate is you forgive that person for attacking you. You forgive that person for taking any action that they did. It may not be at the exact instant that they're attacking you, but the Holy Spirit can inspire you as to what you should do to defend yourself even then. One of the things that I like about the Manual for Teachers in the Course is that it teaches that if you're in the habit of working with the Holy Spirit and you put the Holy Spirit in charge of your day, say spend five minutes in the morning putting the Holy Spirit in charge of your day, that wisdom will be given to you when you need it. You know, so an emergency could come up, you know, like 9-11 or something, and you don't have time to be standing around asking the Holy Spirit what you should do. The Course teaches, well, you'll know what to do. Wisdom will be given to you by the Holy Spirit when you need it, uh, even if you don't have time to ask. Mm -hmm. So it's because of that habit that you've gotten into of being with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So I would say to, to that question, do the normal thing, defend yourself, but forgiveness is done at the level of the mind with the Holy Spirit. So it's a totally different thing. Remember remember a couple of months ago when uh, that fellow Dylan Roof shot a bunch of people in the church in Charleston, South Carolina. Within a day or two, the relatives of the people who had been shot were coming on with TV with tears in their eyes saying, we forgive him. And a lot of people think, I, I know I myself thought, well, what does that really mean? How do they actually perceive this guy? How, how have they forgiven him? There must be so much pain and hurt and remorse and all. I mean, if that happened to you, if someone shot, God forbid, shot your wife or something like that, I, I presume you would forgive them. How would you go through that process? And how would you perceive them, you know, a, a few days, a week, a month later after they had done that? If uh, that did happen, I'm not saying that I wouldn't go through the normal steps of grieving. I'm not saying that I wouldn't be angry or that I wouldn't be upset. And yes, I would forgive. Maybe not immediately, but uh, I would forgive. And if the memory kept coming up in my mind, I would forgive that. Because what is a memory but a picture in your mind? And what is this that we're doing right now but a picture in our mind? So you can forgive something, even the worst thing that happened to you, maybe 30 years ago, maybe you were abused as a child. It's possible to forgive even that. I'm not saying that it's easy. Eventually, I mean, would you go and, let's say, hypothetically go and visit that murderer in jail and give him a hug and say, you know, just try to establish a complete clean slate with that person? Would it go that far? No, I probably wouldn't. Uh, just because you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean you have to have lunch with them. You know, you don't have to establish a relationship with everybody who you're forgiving. 
forgiveness ultimately is uh, for you more than them because you're teaching them once again, not because they really did it, but because they didn't. This is your dream. And the dream is not being dreamed by somebody else. You know, A Course in Miracles students are experts at spotting the ego in somebody else. <laughs> They're great at it. You know, but that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is noticing what's out there. Yes, you notice it, but you realize, well, that's my insanity out there. That's my ego that's out there. And I can be free of it through forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And realizing that the ego is you and that you can be free of it through forgiveness. It's not about spotting it out there on the screen other than recognizing that that is what needs to be forgiven and forgiving it. So you're liberating yourself from a burden uh, primarily. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what was the next part? Next question from this woman. The Course uses a, quote, brother, unquote, as the special means for salvation. Do animals, plants, and inanimate objects represent a brother as well? Yes, the Course uh, says you are as God created you and so is every living thing that you look upon, which by the way is everything. You know, even a table has atoms and molecules and will be returned to heaven. But it's the conscious mind that needs to choose forgiveness. Now, people will ask me if their uh, pets, their animals, which they consider, of course, to be part of the family. Are those animals going to be in heaven with you? The answer is yes. Everything will be returned to heaven. Christianity teaches the animals don't have a soul, which is ridiculous. Uh, they're just a different form. But, uh, you know, we assume that it's better to be human, you know, than to be, uh, you know, a dog or a cat or something. But that's only because we've established a hierarchy of illusions. So we think, oh, I'm more important than something else. The truth is we're not even the most important uh, animal on this planet. You know, we use like 10% of our brain capacity. Dolphins use 20. We're not even the, the brightest uh, tool in this shed, much <laughs> less uh, all the other galaxies and planets out there. Yeah, so right. it's like, um, you know, we've come to think of ourselves as something very special. But the truth is everything, everybody, every being will return to heaven in that state, and they're already there, but all they have to do is awaken to it, and everyone will be there. So uh, if there are people in heaven, and dogs, and cats, and dolphins, and... Yeah, and, but they're and not it, people, remember. They're spirits. Right. Okay, but they're distinguishable. I mean, do they recognize one another, interact with one another, and so on, in that realm? No, yes? no they don't uh, interact with each other as individuals, because they're not individuals. They are this perfect oneness. Yeah. With uh, The reason that I say that they'll be there with you is because everything's there in your awareness. Nothing could possibly be left out in that experience of perfect oneness. It's so full and so whole and complete that it's inconceivable to think that anything could be left outside. Okay, so it's just a state of perfect oneness. It's not some like celestial realm where people are playing harps and walking around and, and you know having all kinds of experiences. You're just saying it's pure oneness. Is that correct? Right. And then the ego will have doubts about that and say, well, isn't that kind of boring? Or is it, where are these people that, that I love so much? Am I going to miss them? And those are just ego tricks because this is such a great experience. It, it literally blows away anything that this world has to offer. Well, it sounds so, like you're not even going to exist anymore in, in any kind of individuated form. It's just going to be pure oneness. The, the, the ocean has settled down. There's no waves anymore. It's just ocean. Well, yes, but uh, that you know, conscious existence that doesn't exist anymore is going to be replaced with something better. It's going to be replaced with an awareness that is so amazing and so wonderful that you're not going to miss anything else. 
And it's not an awareness of something because it's pure oneness. Because an awareness of something would imply, okay, this is aware of that, right? Right, but it, that awareness of perfect oneness has an experience to it, an experience of love, an, an experience of uh, unspeakable joy. Okay, but in, in a sort of a just completely unified oceanic way, not sort of like all sorts of actors playing parts anymore. Actually, that's a good analogy. Uh, you're, now you're not a drop in the ocean, you're the ocean. Yeah, the ocean. Okay, good. Third question. Whose responsibility is the undoing of fear? Jesus says that it's ours as he cannot interfere with the most basic law there is, cause and effect. But he also says, never approach the holy instant trying to remove fear yourself. It is his function, meaning the Holy Spirit's function. Right. You kind of like activate spirit in your mind by choosing it. At one point, uh, the Course says that mind is the activating agent of spirit. So you use the mind to choose between spirit and the ego, which is symbolized in the Course by the body. Uh, the usual approach to spirituality is to try to balance body, mind, and spirit. Uh, that's not the approach of A Course in Miracles. The approach of the Course is that you use the mind to choose between the body and spirit, and whichever one you choose will be what you think is real. So uh, the Course says, choose once again what you would have him be, knowing that every choice you make will establish your own identity, as you will see it and believe that it is. So you're establishing spirit in your mind as your identity by choosing it. Okay. Question number four. Why is there so much emphasis, so many instances, of asking Jesus or the Holy Spirit for help, even specific help in the Course? When Ken Wapnick says that Jesus or the Holy Spirit don't do anything in the world, being only love's presence. And to quote Ken, Jesus gets angry about specifics? Jesus doesn't get angry. He's out of here. You know, he's back <laughs> home to God. People ask, is, is he coming back? No. But uh, he can show up in the dream as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, which is what art and Persa are also. Mm -hmm. They are, uh, yes, they took on a form, very real seeming form, but what they really are is the Holy Spirit. If somebody sees Jesus, in the dream, that's the Holy Spirit appearing as Jesus. If Jesus speaks in the Course of Miracles, that's the Holy Spirit speaking as Jesus in order to communicate with us. So it really is that love. Ken Wapnick was, I think, a very good example for the Course because uh, he's probably the uh, kindest person who I ever met. I remember the first time I met him, I was nervous and he knew it. You know, he was just so kind to me. He would always try to light me up. You know, he would come up to me and completely mess up my hair. <laughs> he knew that I hated that, but he did it anyway, just to, just to say, look, don't take any of this seriously. He was a great guy and I miss him. But uh, he was a living example, I think, of the mm. Course. And I, I, I can't guarantee that he was enlightened, but it sure seemed that way to me. I asked him once, and he said, well, if I was enlightened, I wouldn't tell anybody. He said, you saw what they did to Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> So it sounds like the Holy Spirit is kind of like an intermediary or an interface between God and the illusory world. It's, it's sort of a bridge area that causes beings like Arden and Persa to take apparent manifestation and that inspires us with this thought as opposed to that thought. And it's, it seems to be playing an active role in the dream and that, that that's its function based on your definition. I think that's a good way to put it. In fact, there's a section uh, in the Course called the Bridge to the Real World involving the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is kind of like a bridge uh, in that, that stepping stone that leads on to uh, the experience of heaven.
Hmm. Okay. Um, question number five. Jesus says in the Course that the body should be used only for communication. In The Disappearance of the Universe, Artin says that Jesus practiced sex. Please elaborate. How did Jesus avoid bodily identification while practicing sex? Well, I guess it's a fine line. <laughs> I would put it this way. You know, it's okay to have normal relationships with bodies. And it's okay to do normal things in the world. It's just that at the end of the day, what made Jesus and Mary different than other people was that they knew who the other person really was. So they would think of that person as being nothing less than God. And it doesn't mean that you can't make love with someone any more than it means that you can't eat a meal or, or that you can't uh, travel somewhere. Uh, yes, it's true that uh, the body can be used as a communication tool for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that's the only real use for it. But he doesn't forbid us to do other things. He doesn't say, oh, don't do this or don't do that. He's simply saying that what you do, you do with forgiveness. And I'm not saying that you may be actively practicing forgiveness while you're having sex. But when the time is appropriate, then you remember who that person really is and where they really are. And that's how Jesus and Mary got in touch with their own divinity, was by seeing it in each other and by seeing it everywhere. Good. Final question. What changed for Helen Sheckman that she is going to get enlightened in her current reincarnation? She died in misery in her last reincarnation after she had scribed the Course, being unable and or unwilling to practice the Course successfully. I don't know anything about this, of course, I'm just asking this person's question. I am asking this because practicing forgiveness has been extremely difficult for me, and I don't see myself completing it, at least not this time around. Sure. You know, Helen probably understood A Course in Miracles better than anybody, but she couldn't do it. She was too set in her ways, she was a very conservative psychologist. At one point she said, I know the Course is true, I just don't believe it. And what she meant by that was that she knew factually that what it was saying was true, but that she couldn't do it. She couldn't live her life that way. And uh, I think that in her final lifetime, and she's you know, been reincarnated and she is here, the difference is, is that she will do it. The person who I know to be Helen Shuckman in this lifetime, whose, whose name I would never say, but uh, you know, she read The Disappearance of the Universe when she was eight years old. And she started doing A Course in Miracles when she was nine. She's uh, 15 now and she practices forgiveness better than anybody I know. So I'm very clear that this is her final lifetime and that she will be enlightened in this lifetime. But the difference between Helen Shuckman then and Helen Shuckman now is that she is able to actually practice the course and get the results of the course that she couldn't get as Helen Shuckman. I can understand that. I mean, a good friend of mine died about a week ago and um, very highly enlightened, awakened fellow. And, you know, he didn't think that he was totally done. There was more progress yet to be made. But he um, had severe health problems, and they were really a, a, an impediment for him. And it was sort of like he was driving around in an old jalopy that was always breaking down. And, you know, when he died, I thought, all right, well, it's time for him to get a nice shiny new model that's going to serve him as a much more effective vehicle to complete his journey. Yeah, yeah, I lost uh, my best friend, the cancer. He's my best friend for like 40 years. But he understood the truth. He did uh, Course in Miracles. He knew he wasn't all the way there yet, but he learned so much that uh, I'm sure he'll be enlightened too in his uh, next lifetime. Uh, he had his big uh, problem, his big forgiveness lesson in this lifetime uh, was his alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I'm sure that he'll uh, forgive that and overcome that in his next lifetime. I'm not exactly the poster boy for sobriety myself, but uh, at least uh, I'm dealing with it and I'm able to forgive it. So I think that 
at the end of the day, what it comes down to is if you really practice this, you're going to make so much progress that even if you don't go all the way in this lifetime to uh, enlightenment, uh, you're making so much progress that it, it, it makes it so much easier for you to actually be enlightened in your next lifetime. Yeah, sure. I know you said that you were a bit of a wild man in your younger days, drinking and drugs and so on a lot. Did you just insinuate that you still have a bit of a problem with that stuff? I wouldn't say that. I would say that it's uh, changed uh, over the years. I think that when I was younger, I drank because I had to, because uh, I didn't realize people drink because they're afraid. Mm. You know, that's one of the main reasons, even though it's unconscious to them. If I drink today, it's not because I have to. It's because I just like it. Glass of wine or two. I mean, you don't get plastered, I presume. Once in a great while, yeah. but not actually, no. Uh, well, that's a strange note to end on, so maybe we shouldn't quite end. But, uh, you know, we've talked about a bunch of things, and there's so many more things we could talk about. Even on the subtitle of your book, it says, Straight Talk About Illusions, Past Lives, Religion, Sex, Politics, and the mystery, Miracles of Forgiveness. And we didn't talk too much about religion and politics. But is there anything that, you know, you'd like to cover before we wrap it up that um, you feel is important? And again, I apologize to the people who were hoping to watch this live, and I'm really going to figure out this live streaming problem so it doesn't happen again. So I'm sorry I wasn't able to ask your questions. But what would you like to throw in, Gary, before we wrap it up? I would just uh, remind people that when that politician who you can't stand <laughs> comes on the TV screen, that's your opportunity right there to forgive. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican or whatever, there's going to be somebody that's going to push your buttons. And when they do, now you know what it's for. It's for forgiveness. And if you take advantage of what it's for, you will get the benefits of it. And if you don't do it, you won't get the benefits. So you really are, at the end, uh, the captain of your own soul. Uh, you have the power to choose. In fact, that's your real power in this world, is the power of decision. Now, you can decide to see it right. You can decide to see it with the Holy Spirit instead of the ego. That's your real power. If you take advantage of it, it'll change your life. Yeah, I was listening to a recording just this morning, and some guy was emphasizing how much everything depends upon our perspective. You know, and he was just saying, nobody reads the same book. You know, nobody sees the same sunset. It's like the blind men feeling the elephant. We all have our interpretation of things, and people tend to take their personal interpretation so seriously sometimes that they'll fight wars over it, get into huge pissing contests over some philosophical idea on the internet or something. And, you know, if we could just take things a bit more lightly and realize that we're all just sort of, you know, looking through a peephole and uh, nobody has the, the entire picture. That's true. If you're in a movie theater with 50 people, you got 50 different movies going on. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, the ego loves that because, you know, like we're, we're in the same room. We see the same room because there's only one of us. But now we're each seeing it from our own point of view, a different mm -hmm. point of view which means we're going to have a different interpretation of it, which means that eventually we're going to argue about it, which means that eventually one of us is going to have to die. You know, that's, that's like the illogical extension of the ego thought system. Uh, it always wants conflict because if there's conflict, not only is that making it real, but you're not looking in the right place for the answer. You're looking out there on the screen uh, to resolve the conflict where it can't be resolved, which is why you'll never have world peace until the people of the world have inner peace. Yeah. When they have inner peace, then you'll have outer peace. Have you noticed that people seem to like conflict because it fortifies the ego? Yeah, but I don't think they they know that, but I think that it's true. I yeah, it's it like the more, if there's, some, if there's some conflict, then it's like, okay, I'm maintaining my integrity here as an ego, you know, because I'm up against this other ego. Yeah, yeah, egos will do that. It's all making it uh, real, it's all making it true, and here's the Holy Spirit saying, 
look, you know this is all a bunch of bull, right? If I'm running through an airport and I'm late for a plane, you know, I can uh, do my act and try to make the plane on time. But there's still the Holy Spirit whispering in my ear saying, you know, this, this is true, right? right. You don't have to get caught up in this. Well, that's a good note to end on. Well, uh, thank you, Gary. I've really enjoyed this talk. I enjoyed listening to your books. It's very thought-provoking. I'll be putting up a page on batgap.com about this interview and with links to your books, links to your website and all. And is there anything in particular that you would like to announce in terms of some kind of online course or any particular thing that you've got going on that you want people to know about? Keeping in mind that this interview will be up for years, but um, anything in the near future since we get most of our views within the first month or so? Well, sure. Uh, if people want to know where I'm speaking, uh, mm -hmm. they can always go to my website. It's just GaryRenard.com. Mm -hmm. I thought of the name for the website myself. And <laughs> it's like, uh, a little help for your parents. There, there's a page that it says appearances. And if they click on that, it'll give my whole schedule. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm going to be. I'm fortunate enough to speak all over the world. I get to see the world for free. So nice. fun. Yeah, I love to meet people. So, you know, if you're there, come up and say that you saw this interview. And uh, I like that. And uh, I want to thank you, Rick, for having me here. I think you're doing a great thing here. And it's a pleasure. And maybe we can do it again someday. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of fun with it. Incidentally, we have a page on BatGap that's sort of a geographical index that indicates where people are going to be. So, it, you know, I'll have your, I'll send you some information about that, or my wife will, and your cool. assistant, your assistant could fill it in. That if a person types in Chicago or something, if you're going to be there, they'll, people will see that. Great. I don't have an assistant, believe it or not. Uh, okay. Cindy well, and I work together. Send it to you guys then. Yeah. All right, thanks a lot. So, um, and thanks to those who've been listening or watching. Um, next week is a fellow named Joel Morewood who looks interesting. And if you go to batgap.com, you'll see a bunch of things. I mentioned at the beginning the various ways that the past interviews are categorized. There's a place to sign up to be notified by email each time there's a new uh, interview. There is a audio podcast, which gets as, as many listens as, the, as YouTube gets views, if not more so sometimes. So you can sign up for that if you like. There's the donate button, which we depend upon, and a bunch of other stuff if you explore the menus. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week.